0: Welcome to FAQ NYC I'm producer Alex Brooklyn and on this episode we'll be discussing eulogies for New York City growing up in the village when I bothered to look I could see multiple cities existing next to each other I would often be awake watching the sunrise in father Demos Square in the West Village breaking night we called it then. On a weekday, I would watch the New Manhattanites, clean hair and fresh clothes, file into the entrance of the West 4th Street train station, which was next to the old Waverly movie theater. The theater had closed some years before. The marquee for the old theater provided a roof of sorts for a few houseless individuals and seemed to be a supply hub for the down and out. I would often see stacks of blankets, multiple bars of soap, and other toiletries organized into a complex system of plastic bags in varied tones of white and yellow. The image was so striking to me watching these clean and tidy people fast walking past the old theater as though they couldn't see it. They slid past each other, stealing glances at one another from different worlds. Once the IFC theater took over, the old space and the camp was uprooted. Until the pandemic hit in 2020, when the IFC theater, like everything else, shut down. A new encampment, supply hub, formed, especially as the subways started shutting down overnight service, and those who relied on the warmth of the train to get them through the winter nights were chased out and up to the surface. It has been almost 20 years since I was a teenager, and I have to say, I feel as though I have mourned the passing of several New Yorks in my time and seen New York's grow up or sometimes pass away in the process. What irks me the most about the New York is dead, no it isn't discourse of the last year is how badly it gets in the way of the urgent civil discourse needed for envisioning a new and better city than the one whose gaping flaws were laid bare during the dark hour that's claimed 35,000 lives here. Personally, my city has died several times. My city died once when my brother leapt into an oncoming F train at the Van Wick station in Queens. It was one of the most New York things he could have possibly done. His New York was one that had failed the severely mentally ill by consolidating hospitals and removing psych beds while hastening the quick release of patients with mental health issues. New York died when I stopped drinking, and it was like a wet blanket was lifted, and I got to slide through to an alternate New York that was, and still, to me, is more interesting. Most recently, New York died when my son was born. But I have to admit, I was sick of that one. I had my fill of wandering alone at all hours through the changing geometry of the buildings, new and old. Now I travel with a husband and a cub. And that cub needs a New York that naps. I still get to bathe my baby, though, in the same sink I was bathed in, a giant porcelain double basin monster that you can't even find new faucets for anymore because the fittings are some weird size they only used in 1920. A friend of mine had a kid a few months before I did, back in December. And in August, her partner died after a long period of sobriety. He had become a father who was most enamored with his new baby boy, and trying everything he could to show up for his son. I had the privilege to photograph her and the baby in front of the old Ortiz Funeral Parlor in Williamsburg, where the services were held for him. So in the spirit of that, I've been preparing for an exhibition called Eulogy for New York City, and it will be on display in a small storefront at 21 Greenwich Avenue in Greenwich Village, from October 7th until October 28th with a few of my photographs along with recorded reflections about the death of the city, whatever that means, from a cross-section of New Yorkers. The space is provided by Anita Durst's organization, Chishama, and will be open for viewing Thursday through Sunday from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. I hope it's a space where people can come and feel as though talking about dead versions of New York and some dead New Yorkers isn't a betrayal, but an honest look at what it actually feels like to live here, There will even be a typewriter there for anyone who feels inspired to write a eulogy on the spot and a place to pin it on the wall. Speaking of eulogies, later in this episode, you'll hear a conversation with Alex Vidockel of the New York Times Obituaries Desk and formerly of the Metropolitan Desk. Throughout the month on FAQ, we will have some bonus episodes on this theme and some of the eulogies that were written by our friends and acquaintances will air on the podcast. Again, the space is 21 Greenwich Avenue at the corner of West 10th Street and just west of 6th Avenue, and I hope to see some of you all there. Meantime, joining me now are Chrissy, Katie, and Harry with their thoughts on this and everything else that's happened over the week.
1: News. 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 news, news. New York City.
2: FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. (laughs) FAQ.
3: This is Katie Honan calling from Queens. Hi, Harry. Hi, Chrissy. Hey, kid. Hey, Katie. So New York is dead. Long live New York. I think that is the message for this podcast. uh, Talking about our colleague Alex's upcoming exhibit, which is takes a look at all the different ways New York has been born and died and reborn, um, especially during COVID. You know, I think a lot of people liked ruling New York city out, uh, I think of what my mom said a few weeks after 9-11 and I said, God, everyone seems to like New York city. She says, Oh, don't worry. they will go back to hating us soon enough. People hate New York. And they like to see us dead. But for those of us who live here uh, for, for however long we've lived here, I think we've all experienced different versions of New York. So um, I guess, when did your New York first die and when did it get replaced with another one? I guess we'll start with you, Harry.
2: I think I I grew up in a, in the eighties and nineties, New York. I was uh, very aware of the city, but not all that plugged into specific things. I had a tank in for getting lost. And then as soon as I started to have a map of the place, things started disappearing. You know, and I think that's the point for a lot of people who grow up here, which is one sort of New Yorker where, where this happens, that you've got your map and that's, that, that's the block that you, uh, you don't walk down because there's always those open air guys. Um, that's the block with that bodega farmer in the city, you know, and then when, when that disappears and becomes in the case of farmer in the city, another bodega Salahi, that's still there. It's like, that's wrong. Um, this corner is supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be a barbershop and suddenly it's a yuppie restaurant. Every time one of those things changes, when you start registering that part of your city, uh, dines. things don't feel like, like the, the way you've understood them to be. Uh, my other big one, which is not a super surprising one was, was nine 11 and then being up ground zero and sort of in the midst of all that destruction and then leaving New York for a few months, uh, took a train, lived in Seattle, didn't speak to anyone. And then coming back to the, uh, to the city and just seeing it with, with sort of fresh eyes and it feeling like, uh a different place that, 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 that to me felt like a moment, but uh, I've been reading maudlin essays about the death of New York. And when New York was right, you know, since I've been old enough to read the the newspapers and that's, you know, part of the, uh, the birth and rebirth of the city that, that that's supposed to be there. Someone's New York is always dying and it should always be dying. And the last thing I'll say is, look, I live in Windsor Terrace. Like when I was a kid, Windsor Terrace was all Catholic, all Irish, all Italian, you know, virgins on every other lawn. Um, None of the streets here exactly connect because of the Prospect Expressway and the way it's it's sort of not gridded. So there's no reason to be there if you're not living there. And I'd walk through as like a sort of funny looking younger white guy and like people would smile at me and nod, but then like just sort of keep tracking me as I went. Um, I'd go through with my, my, my friends who were not white, And they wouldn't get the uh, smile and the nod, but they would definitely get the tracking. Like, like, nothing mean, just uh, on your way, unknown, dangerous person. My neighbor, Richard Wright, who immigrated to America when he was a kid 40 years ago, when he was a young teenager, you know, got the shit kicked out of him in this neighborhood with his friends. One of them had to jump off an overpass uh, and broke his legs, um, you know, because he lived here. And he was, he was going to a birthday party uh, because a bunch of white guys are like, who are these people and what are they doing here? So there's a lot of old New Yorks that people get nostalgic for as the cities change, as the internet, by the way, has meant that ethnicities can't hold neighborhoods in the way that once sort of naturally could. Uh, the people get sentimental for uh, the old neighborhood where every, everyone knew each other and everyone watched out for each other. That's great if you're part of that, that we are us, but those things are supposed to change. Um, and, and And when they don't, that, that is of itself problematic. So I, I would just say, I think New York was in its ideal form when I was a teenager. <laughs> I really do. No internet uh, cafes everywhere. Uh, real, real commingling between people, interesting characters, more of an artistic scene, but I'm also aware that somebody is having that scene right now. And and everybody has the, the bar where, where, where you got laid for the first time or did the cocaine Or just have the nice drinks. These are places that people think of as signal moments and scenes. And that whatever happens after that is is different or less than a lot of the time. When in fact, it's themselves and the circumstances of of their lives that have changed. So, you know, I'm a native New Yorker, but New York is not for native New Yorkers. It's meant to be rediscovered by people who move here to make new lives for themselves. And then remade by by those people, the ones who, uh, who stay and become fully invested in the city. So that's... My handful in New York is dead thoughts <laughs> for what they're worth. Um, and, and the very last thing is Alex, says in a beautiful essay is like the New York is dead conversation sucks. Uh, and the no New York is doing great conversation sucks. It sucked after 9 uh, by the way. And there was a lot of that. Like this city's never going to recover. People are going to be terrified to live here. Everyone's just waiting for some next attack. Real estate values will never recover. The problem with, with that conversation is it gets you away from the honest one about how we can see what's wrong with New York, the ways in which it's been hurt and damaged and what's that's exposed, and then try to build like a, a better fairer city, one we'd like more, instead of being nostalgic in an almost a Trumpy, MAGA-like way for some uh, supposed previous era of greatness that we're always uh, heartening back to. That, that That's dull.
3: Yeah. Chrissy, how about you?
4: Wow. I feel like this is the whole episode, Harry. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, I'm a Queens girl, Katie. So when when I left when I was five, I feel like that was like my first loss, you know, as someone who teaches urban politics. I mean, this city, I think in some ways was like one of my first loves besides my immediate family. It was what I knew, you know, and moving to Philly with this really thick Queens accent and just not understanding that city in the same way. Um, even though we lived in the city of Philadelphia, we kind of felt very suburban. Um, and then I think I'll fast forward to, you know, I moved to the city in 2000 after college and I worked for the FDNY. I was a Coral Fellow, so I worked for a lot of different people. And I was all over the city, all over all five boroughs. And then, you know, 9-11 happens and I, I feel this connection with the city because I traveled to all five boroughs in ways that most New Yorkers don't, unless you're a political candidate. Uh, and then also having this relationship with the FDNY that many people don't have unless you know you have a family member. Uh, many Black people don't have unless you have a family member uh, in the FDNY. Uh, and I was a classics minor in college, and so I was always fascinated by this idea of fraternity uh, in the truest sense of the word. And so talking to those guys for a spell about what it means to like live with your brothers and like create this family. And at the time, only a hundred men had ever died on duty uh, in 2000. And so obviously that changed the following year. So that was like another big death for me. And then obviously fast forward again, I mean, there've been several for me, but then this last one, I mean, coming back to work this semester mandatory in-person teaching and I'm in Midtown and just seeing, like Harry said, all these places that, you know, I've been teaching at Fordham since 2009 so I have lots of restaurants and shops that, you know, became kind of like my little secret places where I could go and not see my students, <laughs> not see my colleagues. <laughs> um, and they're gone, you know, and it's it's this, I walk a lot in the city uh, and just seeing all of the the businesses that are closed. And that was happening before COVID, you know, walking sort of on the Upper West Side, especially seemed like at least two businesses per block were closed on either side of the street. And now it's way more than that. So it's like this, it's like carcasses of capitalism. And once like what was once thriving is no longer there. And I I really fear that like, we're going to turn into the city where the only people who can afford real estate as far as businesses are these chains. It's like, I don't want to look like, you know, a mall from some weirdo suburban place where it's like a Target and Old Navy and Marshalls and a uh, Michaels on every block. Because um, that is possible. Uh, I'm just thinking about my old neighborhood near Columbia in the Upper West Side. So I just feel like the great thing about a death is that something else is born, no matter what, you know, even when your body goes into the ground, you're you're feeding an ecosystem for something else to thrive. So I'm hoping that with this death of New York that consistently happens, we just constantly see this renaissance. And so hopefully we'll get some good art and some music for people who were able to stay in the city. Hopefully we'll get some good food. We'll get some people who sort of have a new perspective of what it means to live in community in ways that we hadn't seen before COVID. Um, I'm fairly optimistic, I told you guys, I, I don't know why I'm on this like optimism kick, but. Um, Because the alternative
3: sucks. Being a pessimist sucks. That's why.
4: Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's like, and listen, as we've seen, none of us can predict the future. So I'm going to lean towards the light like all good plants do um, (laughs) and see how it shakes out with, you know, a presumable Adams administration um, and, and sort of see what he has in store for us.
3: Yeah. You know, I always think because I grew up on the very far edges of the city that defines the way I look at the city always, even though I don't live there anymore. And what always bothers me about the discussion of New York is it assumes there's just one center of New York, but I think there's, you know, there's so many different centers of New York and that means there's so many different New Yorks and there's so many different New Yorks I New can live and die and be reborn. Um, and, you know, I, I think COVID was a marker for me. For me, it was sort of the the, the, the instances in my living history that made me really Lean in and double down on New York. Recently, it was Hurricane Sandy, and now it's been COVID. Because experiencing COVID, and it, where I lived in you know Western Queens and Woodside here, so close to everything, um, and knowing how hurt the city was, and just finding these little glimmers of light and hope, even in the darkest moment it just made me feel even more committed to New York city. And, you know, as a native New Yorker too, I always joke, my ancestors just, they got here on a boat and they are like, all right, this looks fine. There's a pork store. We'll stick around. Oh, there's a bar. Okay. I guess there's nowhere else to go, but it just made me more committed to it. And, you know, what's been upsetting is seeing people I know other native New Yorkers kind of doubt experiences and they were big COVID deniers. That was that was probably more upsetting to me than dealing with COVID, believe it or not, because it's consistent, it's it's persisted. But yeah, New York, New York, the New York is dead narrative. Um it's it's funny now because we've kind of been out of it. And I do agree with you, Chrissy, like we'll get different New Yorks and even what you said, Harry, like last week I was on the train coming uh home from City Hall and I see these loud college students come on and they look fresh faced and they're reading this subway map. They were wearing Pace sweatshirts. So I assume they live there and it was exciting to me. And I feel like I almost started crying because they just looked so excited to be on the train. And I said, this is what it's about. People come, new kids come, they fall in love with the New York that's here for them in whatever form it's in. They accept things, they change things, they make friends here and a life here and they fall in love here and everything. And that's what it's about, right? It's not just about the people who've stuck around for whatever reason, but it's, it's about those people who come here in, in any form. And, you know, that's like one example of it, but then you have uh, recent immigrants coming here for multiple reasons and the opportunity that's always going to be available for them here. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll just improve things for them. So yeah, seeing that on the train, seeing these really loud, and I'm thinking, I don't want to listen to a lot of people on the train, but they were just having fun dicking around on the train, maybe about to go try to buy a beer, you know, like a 40 somewhere. I don't know, but it was just fun. So it made me feel hopeful again um, for the New York that everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people, the haters, as my mom would say, wanted New York to be dead because some people can't stand that we exist in the way that we exist. But, you know, and I don't say this in a corny Bill de Blasio uh, hopeful because it benefits me way I, I do think that New York will always, you can't really, you can't really count out New York. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good transition to talk about the news of the week, which is, what is it? Uh, again, another story we've been reading for, you know, a month now about Bill de Blasio running for governor. Governor de Blasio, do you think it could happen? Do you think the experience of New York City can translate to, you know, Suffolk and Dutchess counties and, and green counties and all that? Katie, I'm going to
4: paraphrase a Chris Rock joke <laughs> and say we have a greater chance of seeing a polar bear on a unicycle <laughs> than Warren Willem is governor of New York State. Um, I just feel like, you know, as I was telling you guys earlier, when I was out in Long Island, Hamptons area over the summer, and you had these moderate conservative white folks talking about, we miss Dinkins. What? <laughs> you miss David Dinkins? Like, you despise Bill de Blasio so much, you are evoking the name David Dinkins in this wistful, nostalgic way. So I just feel like, and I've I've sort of said this to people around him, I just don't, I feel like Long Island alone is enough to just explain to him why no one is interested. Maybe if he goes upstate, he can use some of the skills he gathered while he was in iowa new hampshire to talk to folks but i feel like that's kathy Hokel territory um i just i don't i would like you know and i've asked this question on twitter and i, and I mean it genuinely who are his donors and what is his base
3: well i, I will say one thing briefly and it, it circles back to what we were talking about i think that mayor de blasio underestimates just how well known and disliked he is by people, particularly expats from New York city. You know, the person who maybe grew up in the city and moved to Long Island or to Westchester, or Dutchess counties. And the thing is their New York still exists in their mind. And as much as they want to hate New York, they are obsessed with New York city and it's all they can think about. And they Mm -hmm. follow very close attention to New York city Mm -hmm. while maybe not experiencing the benefits of New York city. So of course they know who Bill de Blasio is and to them, Bill de Blasio ruined their New York City, even if they fled it 20 years ago. So I don't know how much he realizes that looms so large. He's a very tall man. Well, I think think about the staff that I work
4: with at at Fordham who don't live in the five boroughs. They live in in Long Island or Westchester. And when I tell you the hot visceral passion, they have (laughs) this disdain. And I think we need to get some swag, Harry. We keep talking about that. But it's like, well-known and disliked needs to be a t-shirt because I feel like if Bill de Blasio is running for governor, that is his campaign slogan. Like he is well-known and widely disliked by not just people in the five boroughs. I know that black folks like him, you know, they're the ones that are supporting his poll numbers. But like when you look at five boroughs, Long Island, Westchester, it's a wrap for him. And we haven't even gone North to the rest of the major
2: cities in the state. (laughs) So, while we're writing Bill de Blasio's <laughs> political obituary, <laughs> that's And a you, perfect, you might
4: be running against a black woman.
2: Like, come mm-hmm. on. Come on. You got Tish James, Jumaane Williams. The idea that, that de Blasio is going to like run the New York City vote and the black vote here is risible, uh, I think. But, you know, look, he's not. Bill de Blasio is a man with the courage to decline himself if there's an outside chance that that's going to lead him to, uh, to power. He's the sort of hypocrite who uh, says we must have remote briefings that I can super control because the reporters aren't there in person for public safety reasons, but is also perfectly happy to have an in-person bill signing with his friends at the uh, Hotel Trades Union, uh, which was the one big place that backed his marrow run. I'm going to say it. Bill de Blasio is politically dead. Smooth transition. Let's talk with Alex Viducal about people who are, in fact, dead, and what it's like to write about them.
0: So, Alex, I remember meeting you for the first time at a memorial uh, for Michael Seidenberg um, in the secret bookstore on the Upper East Side. You were there for the New York Times. I followed you on social media, and you were writing mostly about live New Yorkers at the time, but... Since then, you've transitioned to writing a lot more about dead New Yorkers. Can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? Like, how did you become the O-Bit man for the, uh, well, for the Times? firstly,
1: thank you both of you very much for having me. Um, and as to that question, I mean, yeah, my beat uh, has always generally been writing about the city, uh, as you say. But what happened with, uh, with that was, um, you know, uh, the pandemic had had a big part to do with it and um i was asked at the paper to go help out at the obituary desk it's something i never really ever expected you know it's it's uh, a part of the times i always read with admiration and uh fascination just because there's great storytelling that happens at obits um so that's kind of what was one reason, the, the pandemic. And, um, I guess at, upon landing at the desk, I think the editors just knew I, I enjoy writing about the city. Um, so I have been fortunate to get a lot of assignments about New Yorkers. I mean, I write about other people too, but, um, they know I like writing about New Yorkers and, um, yeah.
0: For me, it's kind of like you have the, you have like a dream job, right? Like find the, downcast find the madmen find the femme fatales find the lonely millionaire find you know bruce wayne and find them at the end of their life and write something that nobody else knew about this person and write something about a person nobody knew and and just paint them for the rest of the city like these are the people that make up the mosaic tiles that make the city great, right? So, how do you land? How does one land such a gig where it's like go out and find these little sparks of city life and tell their story? Where do you come from, and how did you start? Well, wandering I down mean, those paths. But
1: then the story gets a little personal. Is that all right?
0: Story gets a little personal. Is that all right? That's perfect.
1: um Well, I mean, then then it's a bit of a more winding road. But I mean, I. Uh, grew up in the city um, I mean I was born in in, uh, in Milan Italy I, I grew up in the city and uh, when I was drawn to journalism and started uh, you know aspiring to become a journalist I was always very much into the kind of the color journalism uh, color stories human interest pieces you know writers like Joseph Mitchell obviously and you know that's from a different time a different era I don't know if we we get to see pieces like uh mr siegel or or stuff like that landing on editors desks anymore because it's just a different time but i always the small aspect of that being able to just write the human uh story of the city was always interesting to me and it just happened naturally and i mean i think uh i started as a stringer for the times which is um pretty much a kind of breaking news reporter You know, alongside that, I really uh, was fortunate enough to be able to make a home at the feature section of the Metro Desk, which is uh, known as Sunday Metropolitan. And I have had the same editor for for years. Um, And uh, it started with small stories, um, you know, note pieces about the city, pieces about an old shop uh the last of its kind sort of things which are you know it's a classic kind of newspaper story but over time it progressed really more into features uh you know long pieces about uh, chicken delicious the the piano cocktail pianist at Mimi's Piano Bar uh the you know we did a super long one that I, I spent a long time on on uh, Sir Shadow this uh artist who lives in one of the last if not the last Flophouse on the Bowery or the Lost Violin Prodigy piece, uh, a a former gifted violin prodigy who has been living in a, or he's on City Island now making boats. Pieces like that. And um, in terms of obits, the pandemic necessitated uh, a little bit more um, arm muscle at the obituary desk, a very busy time. And and there uh, was this column um, the uh, the Lives column, uh, Lives Lost, which profiled uh, people who wouldn't necessarily normally get a New York Times obituary, um, people who died from coronavirus, a smaller piece is kind of dignifying their lives. So that is how I found myself at Obits, kind of just helping add a lift to the team. But um, over time, the editors uh, just started giving me a lot more assignments about New workers.
2: So, how does reporting on the dead differ from reporting on the living? Just in how you're going about it, um, tracking it to people's lives, the time frame you're doing it on, all of that.
1: Yeah, they're totally, they, I mean, they're very different. Um, and, you know, obituary writing is really its own. I mean, it sounds slightly cheesy to say it, its own art form, but it definitely is it's its own distinct kind of the journalism form um i mean when you're writing a feature about a living person obviously there's a million serendipitous things that can happen especially with feature reporting you know with sir shadow i mean i pretty much lived and breathed that guy's life uh for ages i mean whenever he could make time for me i would collect string i would hang out with him at washington square park see an altercation in the park or when I was in the crumbling White House Hotel, the Slop House, just things would happen. I would run into one of the other tenants who, you know, is one of like the other five people living in the building. So you get a tremendous amount of serendipity when you're doing that kind of profile writing about New York. With obituary writing, it's obviously different for obvious reasons because the story isn't necessary. There's not a whole lot of room for serendipity. Um, it's a, it's much more. I mean, it's a kind of biography writing you know, a kind of deadline biography writing.
0: The story's over.
1: That there's not really any other way to put it. It, it That is pretty much it. The story has come to a kind of coda. I mean, obviously, I think uh, there are some really good obits where, um, you know, looking at what happened after, with the obit, you're trying to make sense of the person's legacy, you know, which, I mean, up until the day they died, everything had happened before, it it is different cuz you're you're kind of really uh you're trying to sculpt their life story in a way and i don't want to say nothing new is going to happen but yeah it's it's different it's different and you know it's tricky too cuz i want to be careful on how i say it but you know you're paying tribute to the person's life to a degree but obviously there's still reported pieces of journalism you know so um they have to be fair and level headed and kind of have everything of been poured in there
2: and, and be extremely accurate right i have to imagine this is oh the boy. most carefully fact-checked section of the times
1: for that we talked to my shrink yes i mean absolutely it certainly is one of the more scrutinized uh sections of the paper i mean no question if there's something amiss you're going to hear about it
0: even as a dead person it's like it would be the last interesting thing to happen to you if you had to have yeah. a correction printed in your open yeah uh, the next day like maybe it would even be a good thing in a, a one one last you know one last another rage day, against the light you
1: the know papers. uh the reporter got something wrong on the piece yeah why not exactly this isn't exactly, exactly
2: a, a correction it's as, speaking of serendipity it's sort of a wonderful moment but uh in this profile you mentioned of the violinist uh Saul chandler right. who'd been a right. uh, child violin prodigy then changed his name to Chandler when he uh, gave up on, on music um, and is now living on this, this boat. This sounds like somebody you spent a lot of time tracking down. You mentioned in the story you made multiple trips up there to get him to talk with you about any of this. But yeah. then once he starts talking, he's got at least a little shit to talk. And at one point, he goes on about how uh, he, 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 he got a uh, – b- before leaving as a teenager and just stepping away from, from that career – Uh, um, he he tops uh, uh, Perlman at one point. Uh, They have a recital. He ends up getting the the better grid, and the story ends with him saying, uh, I don't even know if Perlman is still alive. Uh, Followed by, you know, your voice again, uh, the the paper's voice, Mr. Perlman, who is still alive, said through a representative, I don't remember this guy, but I do wish him well, which is wonderful you have to put in a lot of time with people though i know to end up with those sorts of moments and those sorts of passing lines as you're going back through materials and shaping them i was hoping you talk a bit about that and also what you leave out uh you know as soon as i'm reading about a fallen child prodigy or one who starts a different life you know i'm immediately thinking about uh, david goodis and uh, down there well which most people know is shoot the piano player and carson mccullers who had been a musical prodigy and then left and wrote about that a bit as an author. How much space do you have in the course of this profile-like magazine writing and in the course of obituaries to digress, to explore, and then what what are the limits for what fits within a given story and what you have to leave out? What's the best material you want to tell us about that's still sitting in your notebooks just because it didn't fit those frames?
1: Well, that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, in o- in obituary writing, there isn't, I mean, there are news stories, ultimately, you know, even if they can be written in a feature-like way, they are conveying news. In fact, obits is considered a news desk. Um, so you don't really have, uh, if it happens, it's great. And within moderation, I think it's fine, but you know, it's not, you're not supposed to be getting too carried away with kind of stylistic feature writing flourishes in obit writing with uh like the violin prodigy i mean i mean i'll never forget that story to be perfectly honest with you um and you know i mean without getting too into it that story seeped into my personal life i mean there's no question about it uh, and it took me it long a long yeah how to get so? into it all right <laughs> well uh, well people around me in my personal life weren't so pleased i mean they were like um you know, you're just as obsessed as this guy but i mean i got very compelled by his his story i mean it was tough because well it took a while to get him to even agree to the story i was on assignment for i mean a big part of this also above all has a lot to do with my editor um just because of the word trust his name is bill ferguson being able to do that kind of story, I, I think everyone wants to write those kind of profiles, but it's it's hard to always get the license to do it. He just gave me the trust to pursue that story and, and a lot of others like it, like Sir Shadow, uh, where it was just a teeny nugget of a tip at first. As to that story, I mean, I was on City Island for a different story. In fact, I always like writing about City Island and um i would always try and sneak in one feature per year about city island that was about my limit uh, that i was allowed and um i was working on a piece uh about a father and son who were these kind of they called themselves the driftwood haiku poets of city island um or i think the headline was that such And it was a man who he was a poet and he he started taking to leaving haikus on uh pieces of driftwood. In fact, I think that's what we call the piece, the driftwood poets of City Island. And I mean I loved working on that piece and I spent some time with him. I'll tell you as an aside, if I can digress for a second, I I'm not so great on being pitched stories. This gentleman actually pitched me his story. It's very hard to pitch an offbeat human interest story about New York. I mean uh, they're not very pitchable. This guy called me he got my cell phone number. And he said, I've read everything you do, and I'm your next story. And I was, you know, I was taken aback. I was like, oh, really? And then he started to tell me, I was like, yeah, I, uh, I carve um, and paint haikus into driftwood on City Island, and I do it with my son. So I was like, well, that sounds very interesting. So I started doing the piece on him, and uh, eventually we had to shoot the story as it happened the photographer lived on city island he shoots a lot of city island pieces for the times so we met up we shot the story as we were leaving he said you know by he knew the stories i'm drawn to and he said you know by the way alex there's a gentleman uh here who you know um used to be a violin prodigy or something like that and uh he pretty much just camps out and spends all his time at, at the local boatyard now It was just a passing mention, and I just an alarm bell went off in my head, and I was like, "What did you just say?" You know, there was no time like the present, and City Island's a bit of a trek, so I I actually just said, "Well, listen, can we stop by the boatyard?" And as it happens, this gentleman Ben, he was a avid amateur sailor, so he actually had a slip at the dock, and was able to go into the dock, and because of that, I was able to meet Saul pretty much right there and then. And, uh, it was like a dog butt sniffing thing at first, you know, I checked him out. He checked me out. He didn't know what I'd been told. And then after that began this very slow tango courtship in which I did explain to him what I'd been told. And I mean, I did my own independent research too. When I got back to, to, uh, I mean, I, I made my way to the library. Dry land. (laughs) Yeah. Dry land. I, uh, went to the juilliard library uh, i mean at first i couldn't find anything on him is the thing but then i realized as explained in the story i came across an ancient wedding announcement in the times that revealed he had changed his last name which of course became was a detail in the story in the story and after that then the floodgates kind of opened and the story completely i mean it it all checked out he wasn't so keen really on it at, at first but I don't really, I couldn't tell you why, what happened. I mean, I was a couple years younger, too. I mean, there's, I I hate to say it, but I think there was the human element of he maybe just felt bad for me trying to pay these visits (laughs) to City Island, you know. And I couldn't, we were speaking, but I couldn't really pull out the notebook, you know, because he just hadn't you know, really agreed. So it was all going on the deepest of background, if even that. And uh, I would just hang out with him. I would crack open a Budweiser with him. You know, I mean, I was in his world when I was in the hull of that ship. Yeah, I didn't strong arm him or anything. But I just one day, I think he just, he had a change of heart. And he said, let's, you know, he's like, yeah, you can take that thing out. And it went from there. It's
0: amazing just the ability to build trust by hanging out with someone because a lot of reporters and feature writers honestly don't they don't they're there they're kind of in and out and it's a little bit rare I think as you said you have an editor that gives you a lot of trust so if you're on the clock there's this impetus to get in get out get the details you need you kind of have like a templatized system and um you know get get a story done but if you're able and if you have the trust of an editor and you're able to kind of sit there and like just be with someone even if the story doesn't pan out right you yeah. just have the hours to hang then yeah. I think you get a lot more out of it um one thing speaking of, if you really do a lot of stories on city island every year yeah. there's a house that I've always been curious about where the guy just has a million Cadillacs there's probably no story except wow. this guy who likes Cadillacs really but I
1: Oh, I love sure. Cadillacs,
0: and he has, like, five in his driveway. Wow,
1: that does sound like a good
2: one. We have other pieces to discuss, but uh, the whole time I was reading the Saul Chandler piece, the, uh, you know, the, the classical music virtuoso uh, turned yeah. boatmaker, uh, I kept thinking about another uh, City Island guy who had an incredible time so a bit, Teddy Charles, who was cool. this exceptional... Jazz vibraphonist who worked closely with Ma- Mal Waldron and others on all the prestige blowing sessions of the 1950s that like preceded the Blue Note sessions, the same guys like Coltrane had in the 60s. The joke always was a Blue Note yeah. session was a prestige session with a week of rehearsal. Uh, but the guy right. was absolutely brilliant, played with Mingus, uh, with Davis, uh, Benny Goodman, Charlie Parker, Max Roach, uh, composed. Um had a 10-piece uh, set of his own, a fashion model wife, and then he just left to uh, take his schooner to the uh, Caribbean. Uh, he became a charter boat captain, hung out there for 20 years, then ended up living in City Island, where uh, yeah. um, you're your violinist, I know, he named his boats after uh, Melville novels, you know, Omu and Taipei. Yeah and yeah, yeah. um everything in teddy charles place was uh was either uh, sea oriented, melville oriented or uh, bebop oriented and i was honestly wow. very curious reading it um if this is something you're still in touch with him you might be able to ask down the road if he knew uh if he knew charles as a uh, ship guy or otherwise <laughs> that's first of all that sounds like an amazing
1: obit um and those are i think those those are my favorite times obits to read and the the desk does uh the big obits have to happen, the important players have to happen, that Times having that kind of stamp on, or not stamp, but that take on someone's legacy with an obit. Those pieces are fundamental, but it's these kind of pieces that I, I think are what people really like about New York Times obituaries and obituaries in general, but the Times obviously does these kind of characters because they're in the city. But as to that question, uh, I keep in touch with almost everyone I've written about, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I mean, the city feels like a little village sometimes because I'm always running into these people years later. I could certainly ask him. Absolutely. Excellent. Let us know. Yeah.
0: So, Alex, you said you were born in Milan but raised in New York. Did you go to high school here?
1: Yeah, so I, I was born in Milan and uh, I grew up a, a bit in Paris. Um And then my family moved here when I was about seven years old. I I went to school here, and then I went also to um, to I went to the university here. I went to the new school. What high school did you go to? I went to Browning, and then after that, uh, new school. I, I never left. When you
0: said that you first started and that you were stringing for the New York Times, like how? What were some of those early, smaller? feature-ish, as I'll say, feature-ish stories that you were able to do? Is there one that sticks out that, you know, kind of compelled you to realize that you were going to write about people in depth, like people of the city?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, let's see. I think a big part of it was uh, at at the new school. I mean, I in a way, the person who opened the first door for me uh, was the great Jody Rudoran. Um, who is now head of the forward. Um, And she was uh, a powerful editor at the Times then, um, running the Sunday Metro section. And as it happened, she taught a class, uh, a journalism class at the New School, the advanced journalism class. So I guess it was in my senior year and I really just, I kept pelleting her with pitches and uh, none of them were sticking. And, you know, she kind of indulged me with them. And at a certain point she was like, she just politely told me, she was like, look, well, none of these ideas are really working out. Why don't we just, you know, keep it to the classroom. And, and, um, you know, let's just finish out the year politely saying that none of the ideas were, were really working, but, um, you know, graduation happened and uh I still kept trying to send her ideas and uh, eventually she kindly put I mean again I don't know maybe feeling bad for me it's crazy how feeling bad for, for someone can just <laughs> it can be that thing that uh you know strike something right she put me in touch with the head of the stringing team and i mean newspapers are always looking for stringers the turnover is pretty high you know um, the burnout so, rate is also pretty high <laughs> Yeah, burnout rate is high Turnaround is high And you know, it was a different time I mean, not that this was eons ago But newspapers had much more muscular Metro departments Particularly in terms of breaking news uh, The Times obviously still uses stringers But then it was it was a, a pretty chunk Large uh, a stringer team And uh, I just sat on that list for ages um, And then I guess everyone above me you know, that turnover starts to take place. And one day I was just given a call to uh, see if I wanted to hit the subways uh, in the twilight hours getting quotes uh, for some, I think it was some big construction uh, initiative, uh, just a classic kind of news story, and you know, not everyone's necessarily raising their hands to collect quotes at 2 a.m. in the subway. But um, and then it, it went from there. So I really start to be sent out all the time. But in regards to your question, I, I obviously wanted to. I want to see my own name on stories and, and write stuff. As is a repetitive story that that many journalists would say. You know, um, I, I want to do more story stories. And believe it or not, this thing framed right behind me is, was my first clip in The Times. And uh, or I guess maybe no one can see that. But um, it was a, a piece about one of the last uh, family-owned fabric shops on the Lower East Side. Simple story, as simple as it gets. No more than 600 words. It was a column called The Neighborhood Joint. And, um, I idolized this column actually, maybe it was, uh, I don't, I don't think it was considered filler by anyone, but it was a column that happened every week and it profiled New York institutions. But for me, it was the column I thought was the coolest thing because they were short pieces that just kind of tried to bring an old bar, an old restaurant, something like that to life. And, um, I was just interested in doing these joint pieces. So this one became my first one. And uh, I mean, eventually they just, yeah, I mean, I, I, once I was in the stringing mix, it was, c- of course, easier. I really enjoyed that that piece. I mean, it opened on, I still remember the lead, it opened on the old cash register that, that was in there, you know, and it couldn't process numbers over three digits, I don't think. And that became the lead. And I've always loved stories that that have that. And then obviously it, the pieces, uh, it went into much more, you know, long form feature territory eventually. But I think at the end of the day, I've always loved that kind of New York story.
2: You mentioned, you know, how you ended up shifting some of what you were doing in in the course of the uh, pandemic. And to me, that was actually, forgive me, but a a last gasp of a great sort of flood the zone Metro coverage from the times, which has not exactly abandoned the city. And there's some wonderful reporters there. And we've actually had them on this podcast pretty often. But there's much, much less coverage than there used to be, and that, that's clearly yeah. a a financial decision and and a triage one as much as an editorial one. Um, and it, it was heartening in the midst of the the horribleness of last year to see what the paper could do when they just took all these reporters who were stuck here, sent them out, sent them to hospitals, you know, almost Queens and all over the city. And had them doing that reporting. I don't think we're ever going to see that again. Uh, the Daily News, where I write a column, is a shell of itself. Uh, the New York Post, which has some brilliant reporters, is is a, is a propaganda um, reg. Sure. And, and just collectively, there's many fewer people doing this work all around, even mm-hmm. with nonprofit places like The City and WNYC and Gothamist, to fill some of that space. And it also means that there's just a lot less stringers and a lot less places for people to sort of get the sort of start you did where if you're just willing to show up and put in the work, someone's going to pay you enough to barely cover the rent and you have a chance to make your, your, your mark from there. So I don't mean to romanticize the, the, the recent past or, or previous coverage, but I do think it's getting harder and harder for people to find their footing and and to sort of, sort of begin doing this sort of work or to find places to publish it than had been previously the case.
0: Weirdly, I think uh, the New York Post actually... As as much of a propaganda rag as it might be, is I mean, is one of the last places where you have just like this robust team of young stringers, runners, photographers. Yes, I mean Daily
2: City reporting. They're showing up. Yeah, and the like, Daily Mail to you know, some they, extent, they, where, where other places just don't have the bodies anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean they 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 staff the shack, and for those who don't know, the shack is the press room at One Police Plaza where you can't like if you're a paper with that that hires a lot of people to cover the city, you have someone stationed at the shack to sit with the uh, press department DCPI of the uh, New York City Police and sort of see things as they roll in, you know, and and be able to send out stringers and send out runners and stuff, and so the Post and the tabloids and the more sensational kind of like. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads type things are the only ones left where young people can kind of like really sink their teeth into the city and learn. But, of course, that's not where you're going to find those um, those beautifully long, uh, researched, time spent, personal it's, stories. It's part like of that. The,
2: the, so to bring this back to, to Alex V, right? Like, Like there's no way to find these stories without just showing up everywhere and putting in the work. That's not – sufficient but it's absolutely necessary right to uh to to or or if your perspective on that changed as you've also been working on obits and and getting in from a different angle now
1: yeah well great insight from from both you and i think i substantially agree with with almost all that uh it is uh the changes in in local news strangely in a city like new york right which is like you know the myth of new york is huge and it's you know it's arguably one of the most if not the most (laughs) famous city on the planet uh it could be said and um the way it's covered has changed a lot and there are so many complicated reasons for that but it's a big difference because every week i'm told what i'll be writing about now you know um it's uh, actually the complete difference in a sense from uh that kind of uh beat oriented feature writing or city oriented feature writing where Uh, you know, at Sunday Metropolitan, there was uh, often a, I mean, there was a balance, there were certain things uh, that I, you know, that my editor would want me to look at. But a lot of those stories, um, you know, were, of course, things that I tried to keep my ear open for, and then you kind of follow it down. But uh, obit writing is different, because so much of that process happens editorially. Um, And the reporter is kind of, told who will they they will be writing about which is you know it has yeah i mean it's different it's different
0: who's the like have you ever had to do like a real quick turnaround obituary and just never heard of the person before and you found like some sort of dazzling uh diamond in the rough
1: yeah i would say so i mean i think with that alex it's there are um i mean the process is a whole a whole podcast or interview to its own right the kind of workings of an obituary department particularly the times one which is you know a, 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 a famous obituary department i mean there's a whole documentary about it you know um of course so but the i think maybe the best answer i have to that question is uh there are the the, the obvious obits that have to be done every week you know the the people who shape the news and society obviously those are there's not a question that that the times will do that obit but then there are the obits about people who not everyone's heard of and sometimes the very few people have heard of um and obviously that is its own kind of obit the more human interest obit, right now um sometimes when those are assigned um even despite everyone's best efforts uh on the desk because they're vetted sometimes no one really knows how interesting a piece maybe is going to be until the reporter starts rooting through it so with those kind of human interest pieces the editors often have a i mean they have a sixth sense obviously at this point so they can tell when something's going to maybe be interesting and sometimes it is interesting merely interesting but sometimes it gets assigned and in my case there have been yeah i mean there have been a couple where it becomes very clear after getting an up string that it's not just a 600 word obit it's you know maybe a thousand five hundred words which for us is you know that counts as long form um the hash helper albert was was one of those and uh
0: i was uh i was wondering about that that was one of my favorite ones that i read the hash helper so i had seen him around the village a whole lot you know talk to him because young guy just drawing chalk hearts everywhere yeah. and to look at him i wouldn't think about him that's the thing like i would i would say hello i would think ah, oh, great street artists like doing hearts but i wouldn't think here's a guy that comes from a ultra orthodox jewish yeah. family yeah. and has uh, i'm not sure if he was diagnosed or not but has uh probably what one would like after his life diagnosis, maybe clinical depression, maybe bipolar, like who who knows exactly like we can't diagnose someone after uh, they end their life. But this is someone that uh, during covid really fell really prey to the kind of depression that we were all exposed to um, being alone, being isolated, wondering what. The world was going to bring and for a lot of people that's still really scary and i mention this every podcast but unemployment has just run out and so has the eviction moratorium so yeah. pressure is mounting especially for a guy that draws chalk hearts for a living and um and it was just so amazing to me to see his whole story and his childhood and it's kind of reminded me that i want to know everybody that i walk by on the street i i kind of want to know where they came from but yeah that was a beautiful a beautiful piece to read just because I saw him most weeks, a couple times a week probably in my neighborhood.
2: And you mentioned in the piece that that his paintings had been destroyed not long before in an altercation in his apartment. So between that and his uh, Orthodox Jewish upbringing, I was very curious reading your obituary, how much you knew about or had reported out that that wasn't appropriate uh, for whatever set of reasons to fit into the piece and how much you were putting in the, the sort of the full orbit of the information you had. It's a really resonant obituary and it leaves uh, questions as well as answers uh, even about his life.
0: Right. So, like, it hits the cutting room floor if you can't really confirm the whole, like, lead up to the story. But just that the paintings got destroyed. Um, in one of your pieces, uh, Sir Shadow, that's his name? The poet, Sir Shadow of the of uh, the last Bowery Flophouse. Um, it's not really only about him. Like obviously, he's still alive, but this uh, this isn't really only about him. This is about the death of what the Bowery was, which was Skid Row. These characters that were able to survive that entire era, their world is just changing, and where do they fit into it? Um, so. Yeah. When you find a story like that that not only is about a person but it also has a lot to say about the environment and the p- piece of the city in which they occupy which is dying around them mm-hmm. and being like reborn, how do you talk about that? Like how do you find what is necessary to say about the person and how much to put in about the history of the block, etc. And a quick plug on Criterion right now. On the Bowery, which is a great, like half documentary, half narrative film that uh, only comes around at the film forum every once in a while, is streaming. um, Yeah. Which hasn't, I don't think they've streamed anywhere else before. But so the Bowery is like a big deal, and you document this place, and that's kind of half the story Mm. about this guy.
1: Yeah. um, And that that is a great movie, uh, of course, which uh, I watched at the time. You know, that, I mean, that story is a, a good example, it's similar to, to The Violin Prodigy. It started with a teeny thread. I had seen him around New York, and, um, you know, I found him always compelling. I mean, but I, I didn't quite know what the, what was going on. But then upon passing the White House Hotel one day, one night, actually, I noticed through the window his, a stack of his drawings in the lobby. And then it just dawned on me that he must live there. And, um, you know, it certainly, at at its core, it was a profile of him. um, And I spent a lot of time with him. But as you say, the piece spoke about something wider, too. I mean, it was hard to write about him without writing about the Bowery itself. I mean, it was a story about about the Bowery. um, And uh, that hotel uh, really could be argued, you know, the story of that block now is is that hotel. It's like the last vestige.
0: I mean, for a lot of people, they've never seen a hotel like that. So it's not really yeah. a hotel as much as it is like wood cubicles with chicken wire yeah. as a roof yeah. with like a single bed and a single light um, that even when I was a teenager in the 90s, it still was only like 25 bucks a night or something. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's one of those sights to behold. And then, of course, in the front, behind those stained glass windows is that little living room area with like old chairs and things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And it was, it was a challenging piece for sure.
0: Harry and I used to, as teenagers uh, and our friends, like you would just get in these conversations, right. With these older uh, people. When I hung out at the Fulton fish market, I would get in conversations with people who had just lived their entire lives. Now there's 60, 70, 80, and they've seen the city change so much. Do you get a sense? I'm not sure how old you are, but it almost doesn't matter because you are in the spirit of and constantly interacting with New Yorkers of all ages. What is your sense of the way the city is going and the way that all these different characters kind of in your life that you follow through your work? uh, Have you noticed any themes in the direction the city is going, whether it's culturally, whether it's Attitude wise, how is it changing in like your eyes as someone who chronicles all different types?
2: Or or does it change or is it the same stories and people just finding them again and again?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess this question and this point you're raising is it's this concept that we all reckon with is New Yorkers. And I mean, I guess other great American cities are are like this too, New Orleans and so on. I mean, we have a romance for the city. Um, And New Yorkers are a very nostalgic lot. Uh, I mean, just the other day, I passed by the block that uh, St. Vincent's used to be on the hospital. And, you know, I was just trying to make sense of Greenwich Lane, which is there, this very uh, expensive, luxurious, condo village pretty much um and there's literally almost no there is no trace of of St. Vincent's left which is kind of shocking except for uh on a marble um etched above an entrance it does actually still say St. Vincent's Hospital but you know the whole bones of New York thing I mean I don't know it's it's a tricky question because I mean also to write about it all I'm just as sentimental as, as other New Yorkers, but to write about it with any authority, you do also have to, you can't be too maudlin, because you just have to know it is what it is. But there's been a tremendous acceleration. I mean, uh, the pandemic really did put so many kind of um, places that contain institutional history, you know, put the lights off. But... um yeah, I think so. I, I think I'm as sentimental as, as the next person, but in writing about it all, I do try and uh, there has to be an... Ob- I try and be aware that it is it is what it is, you know? You know, I did one on a guy called Robert Quackenbush, for example, and I really didn't know what to, to make of it. It seemed like such a simple assignment. And I mean, it was. Um, he was a children's book author. But, you know, not necessarily... Uh, I mean, he was tremendously prolific, and he specialized in stories about animal detectives that was actually his his thing animal detectives in particular and I was given the story and you know I kind of started working away on it um but then it became clear there was a kind of vibrant New York story to it too he was like a diehard upper uh, he was a diehard Yorkville I like had lived in Yorkville literally like since the 60s um and Eventually, it became clear underneath the surface that a lot of his stories literally kind of took place in his New York universe, um, you know, his own kind of Richard Scaryville sort of thing. Onion layer beneath that turned out he came from the name Quackenbush, funny because Quack in Bush, you know, his, some of his best known characters were ducks and mallards. But um, he, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. He uh, came from one of the early families that settled in New York, uh, you know, in the colonial era. And uh, it was said that he, he believed, I think, that they were duck farmers, quack and bush. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, so, again, I was given a simple assignment, children's book author and children's book authors have seriously interesting lives. I mean, um, just uh, I don't think I've ever read uh, none of them have boring biographies. But this one here just took me to a really interesting place.
0: There's so many children's books. That I always wonder about the authors. In fact, a good plug for a bookstore, Books of Wonder. They have some great, uh, where rare children's books up on 17th Street. So yeah, St. Vincent's is one of the things in my neighborhood that I always mourn. I can still see the, where the emergency room used to be. And now it's a Starbucks and there's a, a luxury building. I don't believe it is. I, I, I feel like. It sells for between like two and 18 million per unit. And the highest was definitely over 30, um, which to me is kind of insane.
2: Former owner of the uh, village voice actually paid less for the paper, which he then moved to a uh, dingy sublet on Maiden Lane in Wall Street. Then he paid for his fucking apartment in that building. Uh, 4,000 square foot condo with the balcony, two terraces, media room, wet bar, all that stuff. I was thinking about that on 9-11, when I was thinking about COVID, when I was thinking about never forget, when I was thinking about uh, HIV and AIDS, because St. Vincent's was really at the epicenter. And the idea of removing it as a underused real estate to get more luxury housing up d- does make me think we're just going to be repeating the same stories over and over and over in new variations. So that that's my gloomy closing thought.
0: On 9-11, I remember all the doctors standing out front of St. Vincent's looking down 7th Avenue, which had been cleared of downtown traffic so that ambulances could start coming uptown. And no ambulances were coming because no one was getting it because they were buried, right? And so I just remember the doctors standing there while I waited for uh, Salvation Army to, like, load us into a van to go do some volunteer stuff. And I remember just looking at the doctors, like, crossed arms, one hand over the mouth, staring down 7th Avenue, waiting for the ambulances to come, and none of them were coming. And this is also something, as our hospitals just closed uh, en masse throughout the entire state, where we are in desperate need now of like psychiatric beds and bigger wings to help people who need like slightly long more long term care than just an ER visit and we don't need lo- more luxury condos. Uh St. Vincent's is definitely definitely a big marker of a changing city and an unnecessarily changing city. Um and I'm not one for New York can't ever change. But it it, it was one that hit hard
2: well when you have a city that's too expensive for gas stations you don't have to love cars when it's hard to keep hospitals there when you have neighborhoods where it's very difficult to maintain supermarkets you obviously have something of a uh pricing problem so alex this has been an hour thank you for taking the time and drifting all around with us maybe to close we can go back to the sort of uh stubborn things people do regardless of the financial points and uh talk for a second about uh Brazenhead. Um and and what that was like to cover as an obituary and to come into a uh a memorial service of sorts.
0: For a scene, kind of like a scene you you hadn't seen before.
2: Yeah, um that's a
1: nice closing note, and it's been great to to be uh rolling through all this with both of you. The Brazenhead story, that was a, a Sunday Metro piece. Um and uh it was well. The biggest challenge with that story was um, well, though. Yeah, I mean, the long and short of it is, as you both know, being Brazenhead, uh, you know, acolytes um, was was I welcome, you know? And uh, the circle around Brazenhead is is you know protective of Brazenhead, and it's uh, it's a family. And um, that was a moment of deep mourning and um, not to get too into the weeds, but I was like, is anyone going to write about this? It was known that it was closing. So it had been reported on that he died. And then I was like, well, is something is anything going to happen? It just felt in my gut that there was probably going to be something that would happen. And um, I really just the old fashioned way I was I think I was told uh, it it would have to be. I would have to approach his his wife. What what was her name? Nikki. Yes, Nikki. And you know, she was in deep grief. So the last thing anyone wants is some reporter, some nosy reporter. But I I don't know. I mean, uh, I was not um I just felt that it it felt to my heart like an important New York story. So it and I knew it was an unusual situation. So I really just uh Someone helped facilitate a note that I wrote to her, uh, one of the Brazen Head tribe, and um, Hugo, actually, I believe. And, you know, I just, with something like that, uh, you can only write it honestly. So I, I just wrote the note really almost with a rather personal tone, and, um, you know, left it, if, if you'd feel, I, I, I explained to her I thought it would be important to chronicle, but... You know, if it was a no, I would have moved on with my life. Um, But she felt compelled by the note, and I was permitted to come, and, and that was that.
0: What was funny is that maybe mourners of Michael's wouldn't want a nosy reporter, but I think everybody knew that Michael would have wanted a nosy reporter <laughs> to yeah. uh, to make something out of his memorial, for sure.
1: And, and, I mean, it was a delicate space to be there, and, you know, um, but, but everyone there was welcoming, I, I think, once knowing uh, Nikki was okay with the times being there. But then I just kind of tried to just be a fly on the wall with it, but... Um, but yeah, but I mean, in, Brazenhead is a unique New York story. So I, I think it was, it's good that a publication was able to bear witness to that evening. I mean, I've never forgotten that night personally, uh, myself.
0: Well, thank you, Alex, for coming on. And I look forward to, I look forward to all the little stories and the secret bookstores and the, uh, you know, everyday New Yorkers that just, you know, catch your eye. I look forward to reading about them all.
1: Thank you, and I have a lot of respect for for you both and everything you guys with the do with the show. So the feeling is mutual.
2: Thanks. Uh, hopefully, we will uh, we will talk again here and uh, out in the world. FAQ F-A-Q.
0: <laughs> FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media. We are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative. We are headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. Special thanks to our guest today Alex Vodokul and one last plug for a eulogy for New York City a photography and audio exhibit at 21 Greenwich Avenue in the village up from October 7th through the 28th some photographs, some audio testimonials eulogizing the city You've got writers like Lucy Sant, Spencer Ackerman, uh, even Harry Siegel, even his brother Jake's. Eagle, come out, should be a good time. Also, there's a typewriter if you want to uh, write your own eulogy on the spot. See you there.
4: All right, Second, gang.
3: So, I'm this is yeah. gonna sound so, but I just say, like, hey, Harry, hey, Chrissy, this is Katie <laughs> Honan from Queens, New York is dead, long live New York, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey Harry Siegel. Hey Chrissy Greer. This is Katie Honan from Queens. New York is dead. Long live New York. Is New York City dead? I guess we'll answer that today. How are you guys doing?
4: Great, Katie. How are you?
3: I am good. I'm good. <laughs> this is so nerve wracking. Harry, did you not want to say <laughs> you don't want to speak, Harry?
2: I was trying not to interrupt.
3: Adam, we're gonna do this again. I'm so sorry. I'm like the I've had a I've had a, a quite a day.